Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit fightradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Dr. Christopher Gilbert, and we'll be talking about his new book, The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time. In a time of deepening divisions and, quote, alternative facts, trust and authenticity grow more precious by the hour. More and more, people are finding themselves driven to overcome the personal, professional, and social pressures for ignoring what is right in favor of what passes for success. As useful in the boardroom as in the family room, this easy-to-follow book contains insightful stories and a powerful model that sharpens the ethical lens and empowers the readers to examine their own standards and values by applying transformational concepts to their lives, to their life. Most importantly, readers will finish the noble edge, encourage that they have the power and capacity individually and collectively to achieve moral progress and bring better ethics into their organizations, families, communities, and the world. As co-founder of Noble Edge Consulting, Dr. Christopher Gilbert has worked with Fortune 500 government and nonprofit organizations, including the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, traveling the globe to spearhead trust in building uh, and building uh, business sustainability programs. Excuse me. For more information, you can visit uh, Chris at his website, which is www.nobleedge.com. Consulting.com. Uh, I'd like to welcome Chris to the show. Good day, Chris. Hello. How are you? It's wonderful to be here. It's a real privilege. Thank you. Thank you. I'm happy to have you here. And and I enjoyed your book. It was for when, when I picked up a book and I thought, talking about ethics. I thought, boy, this is going to be some kind of book after dive into. Um, but you made it very light and very accessible um, and relatable. So, um, you know, um, if, any, if there's any tool that can make ethics understandable, your book is, a, is the one to do that. Well, I'm very pleased you say that because that's exactly what my intention was, to take what could really feel like a very heavy subject, ethics, morality, philosophy, and make it very accessible and really to demonstrate that each of us has the power if we look at making decisions consistently towards the right, um, to, to really change the world around us, the world that we're, in point of fact, I think really uh, uh, discouraged about or suffering from at the moment when we, we really need so much more trustworthiness, uh, and we ourselves want to be trustworthy. Yeah, yeah, it, it sure is. There is definitely the need is right there now. Um, so let's, let's start with, like in your book, um, the definition of, of ethics. So can you give the listener just a, an idea of what ethics is? 
Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll do this sort of from an academic perspective first, and then head towards something that's a little less, a little more accessible. Um, you can look at morals really as the standard that individuals or a group uh, uses uh, to determine what's right and wrong. And if we look at morals that way, we can look at ethics and say, well, these are the actions that we take after we've done that examination, sometimes for the good, sometimes for the ill. So really simply, we could say, you know, morals are really in the talking. Let's all talk about what we agree is right. And ethics are in the walking, the actions that we take after we understand what those around us think is right and wrong. Yeah. So. Um, and then a couple of your principles, you have like 21 principles um, in the book, um, really kind of address that aspect of, um, you know, there's the, the talking and then there's the doing, you know, and, and there's, you know, one of my favorite news anchors is, you know, don't look at what they're saying, look what they do, you know, is. Uh, yeah, is, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, now. Your interest in ethics, and did you, how did you come to that? You didn't, as a kid, want to grow up to be a, an ethics specialist, did you? No, that's probably very true. I wanted to be an astronaut when I was really little. Um, uh, so I think the journey towards ethics, I think for everybody, is, is probably a, a long one over time, especially as you grow up. Um, but I think I got my first real taste of something that was unethical in the business world when we had a, a, a startup company. We'd raised about a million and a half dollars in venture capital. We had a, a, a very profitable operation, which had operated for about, oh, three and a half years. Um, and we were looking to try, to try to expand this business across the country. And uh, we wound up dealing with a lot of very large strategic partners, large uh, other, other food companies that knew the food business and uh, uh, had a, several of them come to our operation see it, a bunch of them said, no, thanks, we're going to stick with what we do. And then a couple of them said, yeah, we, we'd really like to do this, so let's spend a month there and look at things. Well, the group that did that uh, took off and then six weeks later opened uh, their own operation, which looked almost exactly like ours out in the Midwest. And uh, we realized, wait a minute, despite the fact that we've got all these contracts and agreements about what they can and can't do with our ideas, they took our ideas and ran with them. Um, so I think for me that was the first taste of uh, business ethics. I didn't really think about it that way at the time. We were much more involved in uh, having to lay off 35 employees and shut the doors down when our venture capital group said, you know, that's it, we don't want to keep going uh, after this got stolen. And uh, we didn't have the money to pay uh, uh, for lawyers and legal space against a very large company that's making billions of dollars every year. Um, so I think I walked away from that and I said, you know, we need a better way of thinking about making choices, and at that time was in the business world. And I think that just morphed and became much larger. I started including it in the business courses and graduate and undergraduate uh, school that I was teaching at after that operation shut down. And I realized we have to have a better conversation, a better way to think about the choices that we make. And that's really finally what led to me getting a Ph.D. in leadership ethics and in writing this book based on that experience and a number of other ones. Yeah. By the way, I think your company's name of Craving <laughs> was a lot better than the other like a better to breathe. I mean, when I think about the <laughs> idea of ordering from a food delivery, I would really want my cravings, you know, to be addressed, you know. So, but anyway, just, um, yeah. yeah well, I'm glad you said that because we felt that way too. We thought Cravings was a far better name than Bringers. 
Exactly. Boy, that, that is crazy. So um, now, in, in, in that particular example, I think, you know, it, it's one of those cases where um, when it comes to um, ethical choices, you know, um, there's, I think in your book you indicate sometimes that the ethical choices um, aren't always the um, best pathway um, to truth. I can't remember. I should have had that one handy. Um, but yeah, it was probably the about... section that was, it's probably the section yeah. that was talking about the difference between transparency and truthfulness and saying that transparency is not always the best path to being ethical, but truthfulness is. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, one of the things that um, there, there's one particular phrase or um, that you talk about in the book, and it's called situational ethics. So can you tell us um, about that and, you know, do we all kind of maybe partake of employing situational ethics? Yeah, I think uh, somehow or other we've gotten it into our heads that, that uh, ethics and trying to make the right choices, even in the intro to the book, you kind of mentioned this pathway as well, that this is really for deep thinkers or religious leaders or academics that understand somehow ethics in a different way than we do. Uh, it turns out, at least in the research I did for my doctorate um, in ethics, that uh, it's a very interesting fact, the people who have had formal training in ethics, on the whole, not every one of them, but as, on an average, actually make lower level moral choices than the people who have not had formal training, whether it's in the classroom or the boardroom, corporation, doesn't matter. Um, and so for me, that was really a, an indictment about the way that we trainers or teachers teach the subject or work with people in facilitating that subject. That instead of giving them that it's look, ethics are there to tell us this is right and this is wrong, we sort of deal very philosophically about it and, and teach them a whole bunch of uh, different pathways, some of which are conflicting with one another. And so people were walking out of the classrooms or out of the boardrooms with training in ethics and being able to find a way to look at it, one you mentioned is situational ethics, in order to be able to say, well, I made that choice, and if I use this framework, um, that makes it ethical. And that's not really what we want. What we want is people walking out and using a framework to consistently make a choice that's right or wrong. And so for me, uh, situational ethics really is that arena, if we really want to define this, where people can make a choice based on something that's situational around them rather than having a solid understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Uh, you'll sometimes hear people say ethics are gray, and I jokingly say in a lot of my presentations or keynotes that, you know, that phrase, ethics are gray, is really like sort of using the phrase, I'm sort of pregnant, or I'm sort of voted, or I'm sort of human. You know, we, we all know either you are or you are not, you did or you did not, and that's really what ethics are meant to do for us. They're meant to teach us or show us what's right, and what's wrong. Now, sometimes the situation may be so gray that it's hard to determine mm -hmm. what's right and wrong, but the ethics are there to consistently tell us that's the right thing to do, that's the wrong thing to do. Yeah. yeah and, and also read that um, about a, um, a statistic that was, that was given that 92% of people agree with the statement, I am more ethical than most people I know. So, um, it seems it's more of a, a them thing than a me thing in many cases. 
Um, yeah, it's it's interesting. I will ask jokingly, as you've seen, I think, in the, reading the book at my presentation sometimes, say, look, you've all come here to hear uh, something about ethics today or hear someone talk about ethics. Um, you know, how many are, are here because you're unethical? And, of course, no hands go up in the room. Maybe the occasional joking hand will go up. And I say, well, that's right, because we all live by the highest standards, don't we? And then I'll ask, so who's glad that the person on your right or your left or in front of you is here today? And, of course, that's when the hands go up. Because we all live by the highest standards. It's everybody else probably making the right choices. Um, and this, in fact, is one of the reasons that I wrote the book, to say, you know, we can think about this, and rather than having a different set of standards for ourselves, uh, we can use the same set of standards for ourselves and everybody to determine truthfulness, trustworthiness, and whether actions are agreeing with people's words. It's not as hard as, I think, the educational institutions and consultants make it out to be. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, it, achieving that that um, common um, sense of truth can be a real challenge, you know, and particularly in, in today's world, um, you know, where it seems that everyone is presenting their perspective as the truth, the big T truth um, to everything rather than their view of the truth. Yeah, absolutely true, and, and you've obviously done a great job in reading the book, which I really appreciate. I, I talk a lot about the capital T truth, and these are the unchanging truths that will last, and then the small t truths that we believe in at the time or groups believe in at the time, um, which inevitably turn out to be actually wrong. They're not, in fact, the truth unless the small t truth is in agreement with the capital T truth. And I think the situation we've got ourselves again in the in the world is that uh, while we are starved for a conscious knowledge of what's right and what's wrong, we still sort of sit back and say, yeah, but what I really am worried about here is getting something for me and not so much worried about those around me that might be impacted by that choice that got me something. Um, so it's, a, it's an interesting one of the most powerful tools in the book is this idea of walking up a ladder uh, that we've always stood at least on one step of whenever we've made an ethical choice and how to think about that, uh, reasons for walking up that ladder to make the better choices. Yeah. You know, one of the, um, in, in your book you use um, the example of uh, free, that yelling fire in, a, you know, in the theater, you know, um, and the, the um, apparent um, limitations of freedom of speech and, and um, what, one, of, one of the – and – you know, so you know, there's that particular aspect of, um, you know, uh, kind of what one believes, what, what, what one can do that, you know, has a potential impact in harming up. Um, one of your principles, principle 14, um, says that if what is ethical for one group is not ethical for another, but interactions between the two ignore the difference, then ethical relativism deeply shades any hope of universal rights in both groups. Now, the reason I want to bring this up is, you know, because, you know, when I was reading about the fire, I, my mind immediately came to more, um, you know, pertinent uh, kinds of discussions that we had with about COVID. You know, COVID vaccine or no vaccine, you know? At what point does one's actions harm, you know, or pose harm 
to a greater group. And, and, and then when I got to that, that particular principle, I thought, well, you know, this is, this is exactly kind of um, what's dividing, you know, a lot of a lot of us in America at the moment. So, from your perspective, um, you know, recognizing, you know, we have two very two different groups of folks who have very different interpretations of what is quote right, um, like, you know, my body, my choice, you know, versus you know, possible endangering of others. Um, what, I know this is probably a big uh, ask, but what, what is your view of that um, that discussion that we're having now? Or you know, whether you know two or not two. I mean, it, it, it crosses over into so many areas, but I think that particular um, issue was just made it very apparent that we were we're looking at it from very different points of view. Yeah, absolutely, and, and and maybe the bottom line, like you were talking about in terms of yelling fire in a theater, um, is the recognition that, that even here in the United States, we have laws that temper an individual's freedom of speech. For instance, you cannot yell fire in a crowded theater because of the danger that it presents to others. Um, you know, if there is no fire in the theater, then you're just actually creating a panic, and that may lead to people's uh, injury or death, which it had in the past. So... This idea that an individual's freedom of speech is not limitless, um, it has to be tempered by a demonstrated concern for, for others' well-being. Um, so not just what you can say yourself and do yourself, but what others around you, what affects the others that are around you. And I would say the same thing would sort of seep over the top of that cup about freedom of speech to the idea of freedom of actions, right? vulnerability to this disease, um, and of course you have first have to have a belief that there is a disease, but there's so much information out there that you could get yourself and conversations you could have with people who uh, studied it perhaps more than you have if you're really doubting about whether it's there. Vulnerability to this disease is shared across the planet by all populations, age groups, economic and social classes, national sovereignties, educational levels, political and religious proclivities, Races, ethnicities, genders, it, it, it doesn't see a line with all of those. The disease doesn't. So, um, you know, just like global warming um, and pollution, COVID-19 requires no passport or visa or citizenship card to cross borders and influence entire society, societies, right? So man-made boundaries and national sovereignties prove no inoculation from the effects of a disease. And as a global people, because we all live here together, there's no one foreign to the planet that I know of, so the idea of foreigners is kind of a made-up case for, you know, for humans made this up. Um, as a global people, we face this sickness together. We fight this sickness together, and we must finish this sickness together. So I think the uh, idea that you bring up is a very potent one um, and, and really underscores the idea that our freedoms are not limitless since we live with others. No matter where you are, what ideologies you have, you're surrounded by people um, that you also have to take into uh, concern when you're making a choice, or at least you're glad that they take you into concern where they're making that they're making a choice. And if you allow me just to go a little further, uh, uh, I use the example quite often of the four-way stop sign, right? So there's no stop light, but there's a stop sign. You pull up, you stop, and then you take your turn or go straight, whatever you're going to do, um, and each one of us does that. And, and what you're watching at a four-way stop sign, isn't so much the law in uh, Washington as the revised Code of Washington law, you know, 17-595, uh, 
Uh, I don't pull up and go, ooh, that Washington law 1795 means i got to stop here. <laughs> I pull up and I trust you'll stop and you trust all stop. So it's actually trust between us that allows that four-way stop to, to actually work. And even though we're going 90 degrees from one another, me one way and you another, our lives are much better served each individually if I can trust you, you'll stop, and if you'll trust me that I stop. And so that whole idea of, of, of the underscore here is that trust and that concern for others really allows me as an individual to have some of the greatest freedom. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and one, of, one of the other principles I like was that, that idea of trustworthiness uh, leaves little room for relativism. I mean, you can't be kind of hard, you know, light, trust light, so to speak. Yeah, that's exactly right. Imagine a, a driver coming from another country and they don't have four-way stops or they don't believe in them, so there's no law and they're not thinking about that trust. They just literally stomp their foot down to go through the intersection as fast as they can. Well, maybe they've done something all right for themselves as long as there's no one coming to that intersection that would hit them thinking that everybody's going to be stopping. Um, but quite frankly, their lives are affected as well because they're really kind of literally having to close their eyes stomp their foot down and get through that intersection as fast as possible, um, and that's eventually going to have a toll to it, right? It's not always going to work. Um, so this idea that somehow or other our, our freedoms are being violated um, by either written or unwritten rules uh, laws about how we need to treat one another really doesn't make much choice. I think the, the great foundation of personal freedom is trustworthiness, and you can imagine whether you're growing up or you're in a business or whatever you're doing, it's when people trust you that you actually have your greatest latitudes of freedom. And, of course, trust can't just be from words. It has to be from action. So it's a history of you being very trustworthy that actually allows you to have greater discretion and more personal freedom about making choices. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Now, when it comes to the, um, the old virtue, uh, nurture versus nature kind of controversy about, you know, human um, – development. Uh, where do um, ethics and morals, morality, fit into that picture, in your opinion? Yeah, I think that's a fabulous question, and quite frankly, I think that debate is going to rage for a long time. But is mm -hmm. research that shows, that, as I was saying, that we can frame uh, every ethical choice in, in just three ways, that the outcome of that choice is about me and me only, the outcome is about some of us, um, as we sort of step up this ladder I'm talking about, and we take more into account, not all into account. And then the top step, the outcome of my ethical choice is about all of us, all that might be affected. So we could talk about nature and nurture in terms of being able to recognize that idea of moral progress. You think about us as infants, we're the most selfish things on the planet. Everything is about me. Uh, feed me, change me, clothe me, diaper me, undiaper me, breathe me. You know, it's all, it's all about me. And then after a while, we begin to recognize that things outside of us, if we're also treating those things well, actually works to our, to our betterment, to our benefit. So we climb up and down those stairs, by the way, um, every day. Every ethical choice you make, you're standing on one of them. It's about me. It's about some of us or it's about all of us. Um, and I, you know, I'd love to say, oh, I'm always at the top step. No, I, I'm no different than anybody else as long as you're looking to be better tomorrow than you are today. Um, we climb up and down those steps. And so the idea that we can intentionally think about climbing to the higher step and thinking about those that will affect 
by the choices that we made is important. And, and more directly to your question, our ethic, nature, or nurture, I think, at least from my work, they're both for sure, but each one of us has the capacity to climb those three steps, and either through our upbringing um, or despite our upbringing, our education, our life experience, we can either become comfortable staying at the lower steps and working only for ourselves, or we can choose in, to live into our capacities, which we all have, and, and make the climb because we're hardwired to progress. Look at the differences between us as infants and, and, and us now. I hope there are differences that are related to that idea of greater capacity. Yeah, yeah, I hope so too. Uh, now, one there was one point um, in the book you had an example. You were talking about um, more um, morality development, um, and you used. Um, an example in the book of a gentleman going into a drugstore and, and, uh, his volume when, when requesting cigarettes, you know, like in the 60s, you know, versus kind of in today's environment, they may, he may be going more for the condoms and, and whispering cigarettes. So, I mean, it was a, it was a case where, you know, in the past, we might have tried to boast, you know, our, um, I guess image, you know, with, um, what, what is important at the time, of course, is, you know, as, as we, that, that morals and morality change, I guess, or develop. So can you talk a little bit about um, how um, how that development, you know, it, you know has happened and, and, you know, what are some ways that we can, um, for ourselves, you know, tap into that, um, higher development that you were just talking about working towards. Yeah, absolutely. And I think there are a couple of ways that we can look at this development. And I think what you're talking about is actually a joke I had heard when they were talking about someone in the 60s um, asking for cigarettes in a drugstore and being quite loud because, of course, you're very proud to be smoking cigarettes and your age you can do it, um, and then being very whispery when they had to ask for condoms in the drugstore in the 60s. And then that reverses today where they walk into that store and they're all proud to say, I need a pack of condoms, but they're whispering and, you know, give me a pack of Marlboros, will you? Uh, because our understanding as a society has changed about that habit. In a sense, this is a great uh, idea about this difference between small T-truths and capital T-truths, right? So the capital T-truth was always that cigarette smoking is not healthy for you. But for the longest time, we were sort of riding on the small T truth that it was great, it was uh, uh, fancy, there was some sexuality that were, you know, it was potent in being able to do it. It was just your freedom to be able to do it. And I think over time, uh, as we discovered ourselves and discovered the companies that had made it that actually lied to us about the research about how unhealthy it was, we began to transit out of that, uh, that small T truth. Uh, cigarette smoking is fine, and here's all the reasons it is. Even doctors used to say smoking is good for your throat. We transited to a much larger capital T truth that, you know, what we're doing by filling our lungs with this uh, external substance all the time is actually very unhealthy for us. And you can see it not just in smoking, but let's say people who are off fighting fires, uh, forest fires. They're breathing in if they don't have a mask. They're breathing in this stuff, and it really has an impact in them over time. So the capital T truth comes to be much more potent than the small T truth, and uh, that idea that uh, we can begin to develop it, that happens socially, so we actually as a society also are, are, are maturing together, um, maybe not wittingly, we don't stand around talking about it, at least in that, in, that, in that form, like are we getting mature 
socially. But you can look at what's going on in the world and say, yeah, you can see these truths kind of go through these, these different shifts over time. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book is paradigms. A big word, paradigms literally means what, what, what's the truth that you use to understand and interpret the world, um, right? So uh, some people have a truth about genders, that, that men and women are equal. Um, I certainly believe this, right? That doesn't mean we all have the same capacity, um, right? So it's like me thinking about mm-hmm. a marathon runner. Oh, I'm going to run the marathon and beat somebody at the Olympics. No, I doubt it. I've just not, I'm not made that way. I'm much more of a football player size than I am a marathon runner size. So it's not about capacities. Um, it's really about equity, being able to have the chance to do all the things that I want to do. But at any rate, back to your question more directly, um, we, we, we can see social development go on this path. There were things that we used to believe in the past. We even made laws about them. Segregation is one example um, where over time we began to understand that equality was about everyone, not just about a few, or that word equality doesn't mean anything. Um, and so society itself began to shift. And quite frankly, it's often society that does the shifting and then the laws that follow afterwards, right? So there was already a great banter about civil rights in the United States long before there was a civil rights law passed, which granted people access to the things that some of us had and and others did not. So part of it has to do with that social moral development. Part of it has to do with the generations that we see. We're actually given gifts with the passage of time with these generations that come that in a sense have a greater capacity than we do. Maybe you can think about the difference between the way that you think about something and the way your father thought about something. That that would be a, a, a perhaps an example of that generational shift. Um, there's another joke that goes along these lines that uh, you take a look at the young people today um, and their uh, skills poor and information rich, where our grandfathers were uh, information poor and skills rich. What does that lead to? Well, Grandpa knew that you needed to change the oil in the car, and he knew exactly how to do it. He uh, even sometimes made up his own filters to do it, but he sure didn't have the information you do today. And what's become the priority, of course, is information. And now that I, I know there are people that go, oil, there's oil in a car, I need to change the oil. Um, so we've got lights on the car that tell us when, when these things have to be done. And so we're skills poor and very information rich. Um, so that's a, that's, a, that's a kind of a trend that you can see. And I think we're going to wind up uh, both skills-rich and information-rich um, in the end. But that's part of that transition. So some of it happens naturally, and some of it happens by experience. Some of it happens by education. I think that's another factor here that's really important, everyone getting some level of education. Um, and then I think some of yeah. it happens, quite frankly, spiritually. Uh, how – what do you mean by happens spiritually? Just – um, a, a spiritual awareness of um, our action? Yeah, I think uh, I want to avoid the word religious because that denotes a certain denomination of the way that we're spiritual and rather focus on this idea that, you know, ethics are really based on spirituality in the sense that spirituality is about understanding others or if you use the rules from religion, doing unto others the way you want to be treated. Well, that's really the, the golden rule, quote-unquote, is, is what ethics is all about. Um, you can look at social responsibility in organizations the same way. If they're beginning to take on responsibility for the uh, town around them or the county around them or the nation around them or the world around them, that's thinking beyond themselves to understand that they need to do something about the world because when the world gets better, the organization gets better. 
um, and as the organization only acts for itself, eventually it actually disappears. We can see all the heinous headlines today of the companies that have defrauded uh, the world rather than been responsible for the world and, and where they actually wind up in the end. They're, they're, they're actually, uh, uh, you know, uh, tossed away. We don't need those kinds of things here anymore. We're advancing to a different place now in this global village. Um, so I think by the word spirituality, um, I'm really referring to this idea of thinking beyond yourself that we already have inside of us an innate way to think beyond ourselves, even if it's just to our family or our family members, um, and, and understand that there's a better world when we do that. Yes, yeah, I agree. And and we're going to take a, a, a real quick break. Um, I do want to invite listeners, if you would like to call in and ask Chris, Chris any questions, you can call in at 619-789-4359. And for those listening live in the chat room, if you have any questions, feel free to post them there. Um, and then keeping in line with, you know, the spirituality aspect. And then in my listeners um, are, I, I, I deal with that topic a lot, you know, and so um, the first one phrase in your book that just popped out at me, so to speak, and it was called uh, an ethics out-of-body experience. <laughs> so uh, yeah. uh, we're, we're going to take a quick break, because then when we come back, I'm going to want to hear about that, okay? All right. Sounds good, Robert. Everyone stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello. This is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and I hope that you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder that we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website, byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to more than 1,600 shows that we have had during the past 12 years. Also on the site is a link to the products and services we provide, books, nature photography, calendars, and 5x7 photo greeting cards. Our show is a free podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and TuneIn. And you can subscribe for free on any of those platforms by using the links on our website homepage. We are on social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, etc. And we also have buttons to those platforms on the top of our homepage. Our website, ByteRadio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone, thank you for staying with us. Again, today, my special guest is Dr. Christopher Gilbert, and we're talking about his new book, The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is www.NobleEdgeConsulting.com. Okay, with that, we're back, Chris. I'm here, I'm here, looking forward to there you go. Great. So that that uh, phrase, an ethical, an ethics out of body experience, just kind of popped out, <laughs> popped out at me. Uh, so tell us, tell us about what that's all about. Yeah, absolutely. 
Um, I noticed first in my classrooms, again, I was teaching in, in, in the graduate and undergraduate business courses at several different universities, um, and I noticed that as I was going through the case studies, especially with the students where they're looking at some real live example of uh, some company or some leader in a company that had made terrible choices in the past and to sort of take a look at all the dominoes that fell down as they made those choices, um, that my students, and then I later came to see the people in my corporate courses or, or training, were having what I came to call an ethics out-of-body experience. That is, they were looking at these people that had made terrible choices and then sort of sitting back in discussion saying, but of course, I myself would never make a choice like that, right? I mean, this is, this is heinous, this has done terrible things, and I could never make a decision like that. Um, all while we're cutting people off on the freeway, secondhand smoking, uh, fudging on our taxes, um, cheating in relationships, um, and, and somehow or other seeing, standing, standing apart from that uh, action, those actions, or, or words about those actions, um, from these people that are much higher profile and, and maybe brought others of millions. And I, and I talked about the bridge a little earlier in, discuss, in our discussion. I realized in the work that I was doing as an educator um, and as a consultant, I needed to build a bridge um, that would get us out of this ethics out-of-body experience where somehow we were judging others very differently than we were judging ourselves. And that's really what the book does. It's kind of a combination of a lot of my experiences with uh, my stories and, and other stories to try and make it very accessible to see, you know, when I'm making a decision to cut someone off on the freeway because I'm angry or, or my, I got I got a schedule I got to keep and they're not allowing me to do it, whatever it is, I'm not thinking about it as an ethical choice. But that's actually what it is because I'm having an impact on that other person for my own reason, for my personal reason, whatever it might be, and I rationalize it, which is exactly what happens in large organizations. Uh, with the uh, president CEOs that make terrible choices that wind up costing jobs and costing money. Uh, no one walks into the boardroom in a corporation and says to the board members, okay, all those in favor of really screwing consumers, uh, that's a technical term, <laughs> really getting consumers in a mix-up and making a lot of money uh, uh, with it and trying to get away, raise your hand. Well, that's not how it happens, <laughs> right? They do the exact same thing maybe in a larger scale that we do when we justify uh, you know, secondhand smoking or uh, trying to argue ourselves out of a traffic ticket we deserve because we really were going as fast as the officer says. We rationalize these choices on the basis of that ladder I was talking about, especially, for instance, like a traffic ticket. When that officer walks up and says, hey, do you know how fast you were going? I don't want the traffic ticket. I want to avoid that punishment. Maybe my insurance goes up. So what am I going to say? I'm not going to say the truth. Because it works for me in that moment to say, no, I don't know how fast I was going. Or, you know, my speedometer is really screwed up and it's been broken for a long time. Or, oh, I'm on my way. My mother's had an accident. i got to get to her quickly. Anything to get me out of that ticket except the truth. And we work and rationalize at that. And, and uh, uh, I think it's that kind of small decision-making that has a much more potent impact on the world all the little choices we make every day, then the large decisions by these high-profile people that you might be thinking about. Uh, Theranos is a great example of things that are happening currently um, in, in the law, among others. And, and uh, the, the CEO that was defrauding people of millions and millions of dollars, those are very high-profile cases. It's great to take a look at them and try to draw some conclusions about how they got there. But I think more important are the small choices that we make every day, and that's why the book is oriented towards this idea that, you know, we can reclaim an ethical world 
one small choice at a time. All we have to do is start making them, um, and they're easy to think about making if we've got the right perspective on them. Yeah, yeah, and it, it really um, it, it's an empowering kind of perspective, you know, and the fact that, you know, when it comes with regard to some of those larger scale um, examples, you know, there's very little, depending on who you are, but for most people there's very little that they, one can do personally to influence that versus the, the complete ability to um, influence our own perspectives and our own actions. Um, so in a sense, it kind of brings it home to the individual as um, if, you, if you want to experience a more ethical world, be more ethical or act in more ethical ways. Yeah, it's true. And, and as I was saying before about our sense of freedom, that actually the, the more we're trusted, the greater the freedoms we actually have. We can say the same thing about, let's say, relationships with others, whether it's a professional relationship or a loving relationship of some kind. Relationships that are based on trust and truthfulness are much more healthy, go much farther than the relationships that are somehow based on anything but truthfulness. And uh, I think in that regard, and the book talks about this too, if I ask people, and I'll do this in some of my presentations or seminars, what's the most important human virtue? Quite often the answer I get is love, and it's a great answer. But if you think about mm -hmm. that, what actually supports, what is actually the foundation of love is truthfulness, right? I, I can't possibly have a, a, a deep, loving relationship with somebody that I don't trust or somebody who doesn't trust me. At least we're going to have to work on the trust before that relationship becomes as deep as I might want it to be. So I would suggest, as I do in the book, um, that uh, it's actually trustworthiness that's the most important human virtue because that trustworthiness really underscores all the other virtues. I'm talking about the positive virtues of humanity. And uh, it, yeah. so in that regard, the book is really about trying to underscore the idea that, that truthfulness, the trustworthiness is really an important thing to work on. And the greatest way, the greatest method, uh, the greatest tool that we have to work on that is making sure that our words and our actions agree that we're not saying something that, in fact, we aren't doing or aren't going to do or haven't done. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Um, well, let's, uh, let's, let's talk about the book for a second. The title of the book is called The Noble Edge. Why did you choose that title? Another good question. You know, you're, you're probably familiar, your listeners are probably familiar with uh, uh, terms like the competitive edge, cutting edge, or the leading edge. Um, these refer symbolically to the rare spaces in business or science or life, sports, where brand new ideas or new technology, new ways of thinking um, and acting spur incredible, sometimes unpredictable innovations and advances, right? So that's the competitive edge, the cutting edge. The noble edge represents an advance in our character. This is the space where the nobility that each of us is born with flourishes through the agreement of our words and deeds, uh, a place where honesty and integrity always underscore our ethical choices. Um, and again, if we think about that, uh, the idea of trying to have consistency in our values and our virtues, um, it really becomes very transformational if we think about it in terms of the trust that we're engendering from others. Because all of our relationships, whether they are personal, progressive, loving, are really based on that 
trust that somebody has for us. Um, so again, I think it, it, the idea of the noble edge is being in a space where we understand the greatest virtue is our trustworthiness. That's the greatest uh, uh, a currency that we have in the world, um, and that making our words and our deeds agree extremely important. Yeah, I, I, I like it. Um, now, the format of your book, you have um, in, in the chapters, you give provide some information, um, then you will have a, an ethics principle or two within the, the chapter, um, an instant replay, and then a, a, a very knowledgeable character, Grace. So tell us why you chose that particular format for this, this book. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the book was intended to invite readers into a conversation, a conversation about making better choices or consistent choices, um, and in a sense, enlarging our ethical radar screen so the decisions we might take for granted now um, that might deal with us um, and we're not thinking about others begins to blip on our screen about, yeah, and how is this impacting the others that are around us? Um, in the book, I tried to use this format consistently so that, uh, A, it wasn't an academic book at all, that this large subject of ethics or moral development, but something that was really accessible. Um, there are m many people who want a real strong definition of something. So there are definitions in the book, um, and I'll usually have something that's a little bit more academic and researched, and then something that's a little bit more accessible. I'll call it layman's terms, but I'm not much of a researcher myself, so I'll call me the layman. Um, so that they're really easy to to uh, to see and un and understand, um, and uh, the character of Grace, a very interesting um, uh, evolution that I had in that. I was trying to come up with a way of having bad situations, um, you know, situations where you have to make an ethical choice and sometimes you don't make the ethical choice. Um, that I could then talk about. Okay, so why did why 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 did I choose or you choose or someone choose this uh, alternative choice that turned out to be not so ethical? And I started to write me from the first person. So I said, oh, I made a choice, and I got $20 extra change from the store clerk the other day. And I got home, and I said, oh, do I keep this or not? And, yeah, I decided to keep it. I thought, well, here's the guy writing the ethics book. I probably shouldn't use I. Um, that's because it's going to be like, well, how's this guy making this bad choice to keep the $20 he doesn't deserve offering this book on ethics? So I said, okay, uh, maybe I'll put the reader in this. I say, okay, so you, you went to the store, and you got the $20 extra change, and you kept it. And I'm going, well, that's no good because it's like pointing the finger at somebody, and you may be far uh, more ethical than, you know, do doing the situation that I was describing. So I thought, I need a fictional character. I need someone that I can sort of shoulder these different decisions, and they're fictional so there's no one making a judgment uh, right or wrong about them, to be able to explain the kind of thought process that one might go through when they're trying to decide the right choice to make. And that's where I came up with Grace, and I think it was heavenly inspiration that made me call her Grace. I, I don't even remember the process. I just remember I need a name, I need a name, oh, Grace, and I just started marching on into the book. And it wasn't until later I go, oh, Grace, what a great <laughs> what a great name for this character who's trying to make better decisions. Exactly. I mean, if, if someone named Grace doesn't have that higher – our own higher goal or desire than, you know, I don't know what, what kind of name would, but, but it was, yeah, it was a perfect choice. And, and, and I liked the example of that grace provided, that you provided through grace, because it, that is the one area I think that the readers are going to be able to, um, be able to translate or, or, or to be able to um, 
look to themselves for a similar kind of experience where they can then, you know, apply the, the information uh, directly. So, I mean, it was, it's a, it was very good in making it very accessible. So, I, like I said, Grace is a, she's a, a smart cookie. <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, I appreciate it. In fact, if the book gets popular enough, I think I'm going to start offering T-shirts um, that literally say, what would Grace do? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. That would be great. That sounds good. There you go. you got the, that marketing uh, knowledge of yours. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah. Now, one of the uh, areas that I think I, I, one of the areas I want to talk about now is that um, you indicate that um, people can take advantage um, of progress offered by crisis. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Because I don't think many people view crises as an opportunity. Um, so, can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I don't want to minimize anybody's crisis that they're going through. I mean, the time you're in it, I think it's often quite difficult to see anything like progress or something positive coming out of it. Um, but I would say, you know, if you hearken back, you're not in the middle of a specific crisis, so you can hearken back to the great crises you've faced as hurdles in the past, again, whether they're professional or personal or family-related. Um, once you are on the other side of that hurdle, that is, you got through that crisis, it's like Alice going through the looking glass. You looked at the world differently than you did before the crisis happened. I'll take a large crisis. We can look at 9-11 and say, yeah, when that happened, it was definitely a crisis for most of us here in the U.S. and, and actually others around the world. Um, and at the time, it just feels ugly and awful, and you're not quite sure how you're going to cope with it. But once we get on the other side, you can begin to recognize, yeah, there were some pretty substantial things that happened on the other side of 9-11 that actually then begin to shape our world from that point on. And I'm trying to use a, a large social crisis here, not just dealing with somewhat specific individual crisis. But it's really the same thing. You know, if you think about it, one thing that drastically changed after 9-11 happened is that before 9-11, uh, what was going on in the Middle East were essentially three-minute sound bites on CNN and other news agencies about something very distant and away from us. After 9-11, we were really visited by the differences between us and those that were desperate enough to try and, and, and get attention or try and create destruction. And suddenly the Middle East actually becomes something far more potent to us. And I'm not just talking about the large political idea of the Middle East. I'm just talking about individuals that were there in that country right. and the things that they're going through, the refugees, the people that are uh, being put upon because they don't have freedoms, um, that becomes a little bit more personalized for us. I'm not saying we necessarily wittingly, wittingly went through that transition. I'm just saying that that tragedy, 9-11, actually makes that understanding happen in certain ways, and then we can react to whatever that understanding means. But the understanding's different. We've gone through the looking glass. So, so too, for someone's individual tragedy, uh, a terrible breakup in a relationship or a death uh, of little ones or older family members often has an impact on us, and the world is a little different after um, that tragedy. So if we look at those things as hosts of a change, I think the, the uh, wording that I use in the book actually comes from a book called Illusions by Richard Bach. Um, it says that we need problems because we need the gifts in their hands. And while we may not see those gifts at the time, 
eventually they're open if we understand the change that happened with that problem that we faced. So we need problems because we need their gifts. Yeah, yeah. It's certainly a, a different way of, of looking at it, you know, in perspective, shift in perspective. And, and you know, and I, I, I guess that that shift in perspective is the beginning of change, you know, of, of our actions from that point forward. Yeah, and, you know, we don't have to have tragedy to make those changes. We've got free will. We could sit down and, and think about those things and make those changes um, towards the better anyway. It's just that tragedies often sort of are lightning bolts um, that strike, and we listen to the thunder, and it's very loud, and, and, and that gets us to think the way that we perhaps could have thought before the tragedy struck. So uh, I'm in favor of far less tragedies, trust me, um, uh, but it also means that we have to be more potent and, uh, and more precise about the way that we think about making choices and, and the way that we build our trust with others. The changes can be internal, they can be driven internally or external. But, you know, the change does occur. So, uh, yeah, and that's exactly to, uh, right. Wouldn't the world be a better place, better, better place if there weren't huge tragedies like 9-11 that partially were um, about us coming to have a greater consciousness about the world? Yeah, it certainly would. Um, so we're getting down toward the end of the show, but I do want to um, touch on the topic of business, ethics, um, and, and profitability. You know, because some people would say, you know, um, business ethics is, a, is an oxymoron. So can you talk to your, with your research and um, what, how, how does, um, but be more ethical in one's actions from a business standpoint point, um, can it lead to profit, more profit? Uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, when he originally started this conversation, uh, I'm going to say for me that was about 25 years ago with different businesses or corporations, we didn't have many uh, facts or f figures about the, the change that would be there. Um, and now we do, and I'll, I'll talk about a couple of those. You know, the largest shadow is cast from the top, and many leaders in business organizations and elsewhere run to the law as they attempt to make ethical choices. But unfortunately, um, where law tells us what we can do, it's ethics that tell us what we should do. And that's really one of the points in the book as well. Laws tell us what we can do, but ethics tell us what we should do. Um, and don't we want the decisions made at the highest levels um, at all levels, to be focused on what we should do. Um, what's, a, what's legal isn't always very praiseworthy, and, and I make a point of saying in the book, if we start the conversation about the law, that's fine, but that's really the low bar for taking ethical actions. It's the first place we could start, but we shouldn't stop companies to move dangerous or environmentally damaging processes offshore um, where uh, laws aren't as protective of workers or environmental laws are lax. Um, it can be legal to do that. I can move my corporation someplace else in some other country that doesn't have the same environmental laws. It's legal to be able to do that, and I can do the pollution there that I couldn't do here. Um, but is it the right thing to do? And so I think that's really where organizations, the organizations I work with, the business conduct is not based so much on compliance in the law. That's the first place to start the conversation. It's really about understanding the things that the business should be doing, which, by the way, includes more and more business becoming uh, uh, more socially responsible. And I said there are uh, 
figures we have now about organizations that make ethics a priority versus or, or social responsibility a priority and organizations that don't. Um, every year there's a, a, a survey that's run by Ethisphere um, and Gallup about the top 100 most ethical companies as compared to the bottom 100, I'll say, least ethical companies and what the differences are. So there's some pretty remarkable stats. Um, for instance, there's a 22% increase in profitability among the top 100 organizations as compared to the bottom 100. There's a 21% increase in productivity in the top 100. There's a 37% decrease in absenteeism in the top 100, right? And a, and a uh, 65% less employee turnover in the top 100. So it's far more profitable to make ethics, social responsibility a priority in your companies, whether it's a small company or a large one, because in the end, that sense of trust and that sense of responsibility spills over the cup to the consumers that are buying the products, and there are enough companies out there doing heinous things that it's quite easy to represent yourself, especially if you're being more ethical, as one of the ethical and one of the socially responsible, and, and it leads to much greater uh, profit in the work that you're doing. So I'm glad we've got those stats now because your question is exactly like the bottom line question that CEOs used to ask me. So if we do all this and we spend all this money inside of our company, uh, what are we going to get out of it? And I, I had some answers, but not stats like these. Now with stats like these, it's like, well, do you want to be 22% more profitable? I mean, imagine getting a 22% raise every year. 22% more profitable? Yeah. Oh, sure we do. Well, okay, then let's talk about how that happens and the companies that are making it happen and the things that they use to make it happen. So we're on the path towards a better world. I think maybe I need to say this, especially coming down to the interview. You know, I couldn't be, despite the fact that I spend my life in this world, of really bad decisions or bad decision-making, I couldn't be more optimistic about what's going on now in the world, even though there are heinous things happening all the time every day, because more and more people of greater diversity are entering the conversation in profound ways to make a change and asking the right questions, right? Even this idea of social responsibility and ethics in a company, we wouldn't have said a word about this 35 or 40 years ago. Now it's on many people's minds, especially consumers' minds. It's on our minds about diversity and equity and equality. All those things are good for the transformation that we're actually in the middle of making. Yeah, yeah, that's good. And, you know, also it seems that, you know, helping make the case are those um, very high-profile um, not do-gooders, you know, the, the, the unethical um, actions of, of some of those large corporations making or making the question. Um, oh, gosh, we're down to the end of the show, Chris, but uh, what is it you hope that people, uh, the readers are going to take away from reading The Noble Edge? Yeah, that's, uh, I think that's the thing. I'll give three concrete things that I'm hoping the book does because, again, it, it's meant to create a conversation. I'd love to get involved in that conversation wherever it starts to happen. Um, I think first you stop thinking of ethics as being situational or gray. Um, you can't be sort of pregnant. You can't be sort of human. Um, <laughs> ethics are there to tell us what's right and what's wrong, and you are or aren't following the idea that there is something right or something wrong. That's solid ground to stand on to make choices that everybody starves for it. Um, second, ethics aren't philosophical or iffy, iffy uh, even religious. Um, a good analogy for what ethics are, like the, the guardrails along the side of a highway bridge. Who would cross the bridge at 60 miles an hour if there are no guardrails along the side? So we don't look at guardrails as, as uh, punishments. 
we really look at them as a, as a privilege. Ethically, they're really is a privilege to help us get along on our path that we want to go with the others that are also going on paths either the same way or different ways. So they're really a privilege, um, not, not a penalty. And the third thing I hope people get is that the most powerful action in the book is climbing that moral ladder that I was talking about, going from the lowest rung and making choices, ethical choices, it's all about me, to the highest rung. Nah, it's all about the people that be affected by the choice that I make. And there are easy tools in the book to be able to figure out how to do that. Absolutely. Well, I didn't think that I was going to enjoy a book on ethics as much as I did yours, but I did. So, and uh, you made it very understandable, um, and um, I, I believe that the reader can't help but have a raised awareness when it comes to their actions um, with regard to um, ethical and moral ethical and moral uh, choices that one makes. So. I want to thank you for your time today. I really enjoyed speaking with you. Yeah, thank you so much. And people can get the book at Amazon.com uh, and Barnes and & Noble and all the places they might go to their brick-or-mortar spots. So. Perfect. That, that sounds great. Um, and I want to thank you again. So, everyone, uh, today my special guest has been Dr. Christopher Gilbert. We've been talking about his new book, The Noble Edge, Reclaiming an Ethical World, One Choice at a Time. And as you said, you can find that book at Amazon and other leading book um, distributors. Um, and you can also visit his website, www.nobleedgeconsulting.com, to look at all the other services that he has to offer. Well, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition. I'll be bringing inspiration to her show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Remember, our show is available as a free podcast from Spotify, iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Apple Podcasts, Blog Talk Radio, Amazon Music, and Audible. To follow our show on any of those platforms, visit ByteRadio.me and select the one you use most. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at ByteRadioMe. Until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.